Welcome to episode 71 of The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Our guests on this episode are Casey Kaufman and Jonna Ireland. Casey and Jonna are both artists featured in Valley Girl Redefined, a group show at the Brand Library and Arts Center in Glendale, California, which is up until March 22nd, 2019. Casey Kaufman is a multidisciplinary artist from the San Fernando Valley, and she is currently in the MFA program at University of Southern California. You can also see her work at the LA Gallery Elevator Mondays in the group show Psychonetics Beyond the Great Filter, and that's up through March 4th, 2019. I think that like being a female identifying artist, like we so often have this panic and anxiety about talking about ourselves, representing ourselves, being misconstrued as manipulating, like in so many ways, the way that you fit into the the beauty construct, you know, can be really used and weaponized against you. I think it's so interesting to find out about the adaptability of artists and how we find ways around ourselves. Jonna Ireland was born in Philadelphia. She has lived in New York, Oregon, and Los Angeles twice, and now she is here to stay. Her solo show, The Valley Below, opens on March 9th at Antenna in New Orleans and runs through April 7th, 2019. I think that a lot of photographers feel that the end game is a physical object. And I do like the frame print. I mean, you always lose something when you're looking at something on a tiny screen versus uh, a big print, but there's a way that images on screen feel alive to me, and I like what it does to my work. Even if it's teeny tiny, there's still a, there's, there's a glow. At the end of the show, we're going to hear a song from an old and good friend of the show, Joshua Weinberg, as Narak Slip. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record magically repaired and now we have a very special announcement yes we'd like to invite you to the people's six-year anniversary gala on friday march 8th from 7 to 11 p.m at tsa la gallery and tsa tiger strikes asteroid gallery that is in the bendix building which is at 1206 maple ave uh, on the fifth floor in downtown la california the gala will be a celebration of this podcast existing for six whole years, we've done 72 episodes once a month for six years. That's a lot of episodes. We're inviting everyone who's ever been on all of those episodes. Everybody. Yes. Uh, and we're also inviting uh, friends of the show. Yes. And if you're listening to the show right now, that you're means a friend you're of the a friend show. of the show. Yeah. And that means you're, you're invited. invited. So please come join us. Yeah. And it's going to be a party with projection by Ignacio Ginzone and DJs Ian James and Matt Siegel. Greg Curtis, Alan Nakagawa, Christy Roberts-Berkowitz, and Joel Kayak. They're all going to be great. Uh, Remember, it starts at 7 p.m., and they're going to kick us out by 11.30 p.m. So show up as early as you can. Uh, There's going to be plenty of drinks. Uh, And there will be a balloon drop. There's going to be a balloon balloon drop. drop. Yes. You don't want to miss that. At some point in the evening, there will be a balloon drop. Don't miss it. (laughs) And you can find out all the info about the gala at insertblancpress.net by clicking on the people at the top of the page. Exactly. And uh, we want to thank you for listening to the show, and we hope to see you at the gala. Bring your friends. Yeah, bring your friends. Casey Kaufman and Jonna Ireland, welcome to the people. Yeah, welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. So y'all are both in a show at the Brand Library yes. in beautiful Glendale, California. And the name of the show is Valley Girl Redefined. You want to talk about it? Definitely. Yeah. Um, I am definitely curious to hear about your uh, 
the work that you've made for the show genre. And I know that um, the most I know about it is that you're not from the Valley. So how did you approach that? Uh, I'm not from the Valley. And I know that Erin knew a lot of the artists and had sort of put the show together, but she also put out a call, which I saw, Mm -hmm. and I sent her my work and said, I'm going to begin by telling you that I'm not from the Valley, (laughs) but I make this work that's about the Valley. The Valley is really important to me and to my husband's family, which is now my family. So let me show you this work and see if I can kind of sneak in. Yeah. And that (laughs) ended up working. Nice. And the work that's in the show is from my first year of grad school. Mm Mm-hmm. So it's uh, it's not new work. I'm still making work there, but it's pretty cool to have work that I made at a time when I had just moved here and was still finding my place in the city and at school uh, be shown all these years later. So it feels less like I had no idea what I was doing than it did at the time. Right. So the moment that you made that work, it was sort of your first impression of the valley. Oh, yeah. I yeah. mean, I'd been here. I'd been there before mm-hmm. just visiting, but... We were, I was just beginning to spend a significant amount of time there and figure out uh, how I could use it in my work and yeah. what I could do with it and how I could fit myself into my my husband's family through making work there. Yeah, so how did that manifest in physical work? I started making these portraits there, and at first I didn't know how it was all going to hang together or whether it was going to turn into anything bigger It was more about taking advantage of the incredible location. Mm -hmm. The house that my husband's grandfather lives in is like what somebody who grew up on the East Coast, like me, watching TV in the 90s, would imagine that people in California live. There's a tennis court, there's an amazing (laughs) pool, there's this big yard, and the house itself is, you know one level and it's all spread out. Oh, that like ranch style Mm -hmm. expanse? Yes. Very valley. Very Valley, and it's um, Flagstone Patio, mm-hmm. and I just wanted to to use it just to take advantage of what was available to me and uh, just use it to make work while I tried to figure out what else I wanted to do, and then it turned out to be the thing I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, was that first impression of, and we're talking about the San Fernando Valley, if, if someone listening doesn't know that, um, <laughs> um, what was that first impression of the San Fernando Valley? Good, bad, somewhere in between? It was good. It was, so my husband's grandfather lives in Encino, so that is the part of the valley that I know the best, and that's, of course, uh, kind of what I would have seen in movies and TV most mm-hmm. when I was thinking about the valley. Encino Man sure. is yeah. a good example. Karate so kid. when I think of the valley, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's what, it's the city I think of, too. Totally, yes. Yeah, it has a, I'm, I mean, when I first moved here and would go, the va- all of L.A. in general, but the valley mostly, driving through it, and I'm also from the East Coast, would have those little, I don't know if there's a name for this thing, where you're driving somewhere in Los Angeles and you you get this weird deja vu thing and it's because it was in Karate Kid or, <laughs> or in Sino Man or whatever. And you're like, yeah. I know, it's like I've been here before, whatever yeah. that is. Like a, oh, I, I just, I had, a, I had a word for it and I lost it. But I know what you mean. Yeah, that thing, whatever that thing is. <laughs> yeah, I didn't even realize like how pervasive the perception of not only the Valley is, but Los Angeles itself until I moved away. Cause I'm from here. I'm from the San Fernando Valley, grew up in Van Nuys and then later Woodland Hills. And I went to college in the, um, at the Evergreen State College in Washington. Mm-hmm. And I, I didn't even understand 
how often my home was being represented in film and TV until I missed it. And then I was watching all these movies and TV and I was like, oh, that's my, that's this street, that's that. And so I, you know, it's like a, a fish in a bowl of water. You don't know it until you leave the water. You know, you can't smell the water. You're in it. <laughs> you can't hear your own accent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> until somebody makes fun of you and it's like, for sure. And you're like, oh, I thought I was a hippie at hippie school, but really I'm this L.A. bitch. Got it. <laughs> Um, well, can we talk about that a little bit, uh, The especially in light of the uh, article in The New Yorker about the show uh, mm-hmm. featuring a cartoon of Casey? Um, <laughs> they they kind of lay on a little thick the accent thing, right? Yeah. Uh, and I, I mean, not the article is a good article, but like, what do you what do you all think about that sort of approach to it? So, for example, they could have focused more on the work and less on just the phenomenon of the Valley Girl, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. What do you, yeah, what do you think about that? I think it kind of makes sense for the spirit of the show itself. Um, of course, I always want to talk about the work. I'm sure Jana does, too. We all want to yeah. talk about our art. But um, I think that the beautiful spirit of this show is about people who are being underrepresented. Um, and it's really a curatorial feat. The expanse of people who they've chosen from age ranges to, you know, diverse ethnic and economic backgrounds. Like, I think it's a much more complete version of what a Valley Girl is. So I understand that that's the thing that people want to break down when talking about the show. And, you know, if you're from a place, no matter what you make, it's going to be a reflection of that. So we can, we can talk about how the work relates to it, but I think that, um, conceptually something that the show does is really like talk about a more honest representation of what that can be and mm-hmm. johnny your your is it your grandfather's house that you took those photographs in you said my husband's grandfather your husband's grandfather's house and it was uh i read a little bit about it maybe on your website but how the his grandmother had passed is that true yes and there was like rooms in this very valley home that were sort of preserved do i Tell me about that. Am I getting that right? Something. It's um, my husband's grandmother died maybe 25 years ago, and the family has had the house for 60 years. They bought it in 1958. Wow. And my husband's grandfather still lives there. He just turned 98, so he is still in the house. But there's sort of a limit to uh, the to how much of the house he can use. Totally. So it's sort of like a straight shot from his room into the kitchen and and back and then there's this set of rooms that are really for entertaining like a a living room kind of parlor thing and a little bathroom and an an entryway that no one ever enters through because the family always goes in through the back by the garage and a formal dining room and I uh, I spent a lot of time in those rooms in particular because I liked the the not lived in quality of them yeah. and even when she was alive they were rooms for entertaining so if you talk to my mother-in-law and her siblings they weren't rooms that they were really allowed to play in when they were growing up so they're that's they've always been used that way which is to say not used very much at all right it's like a curated domesticity or something right that's a good way to describe yeah. it which it's worked for, really well for other people, right? Not the family, right? Which is what makes the the photo, your photographs of that room, and then other photographs of yours that I remember seeing, where there is that. It's hard for me to describe because they're weird because they're not weird at all. Like there's <laughs> something unsettling and lonely about them, maybe or isolating or something. But you, it's hard to tell why you get that feeling. Does that make sense? 
I think so. It's hard to talking about the fish not seeing, not understanding that it's in water. Yeah. It's hard to pick up those qualities in my own work, I think. Right. Well, they're there. I can tell you. But, <laughs> but then you look at them and it's just like someone standing, lighting candles. I'm thinking of one where I think it's you and they're mm-hmm. like lighting these two candles and I think you're smiling even. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's nothing about the photograph that it's not some Cindy Sherman thing where it's like, oh, this is a character. This person is playing like there's nothing to indicate that or to indicate that there's anything lonely or tragic about it. But it's just like the photographs exude something a little darker than you would think is going on. Is that a correct impression? I think that's true. Um, I'm thinking about always, but, but in this work in particular, thinking about the performance of being a woman and then the performance of being this woman in this home. And the the work that I'm doing now, which is a project called Milk and Honey, is actually a sequel to the work that the photographs that are in Valley Girl Redefined um, came from. And so I'm now coming back to the work with children and trying to figure out how to fit them into the work and fit the idea of fitting children into this performance Mm. into my own work and also like living my own version of it right so when you take these photographs it's all like you're taking the photo setting up a timer it's just you by yourself right depends on how complicated it is yeah with most of them i have a timer or a uh or a remote yeah but for some of them like when i'm working with my children it works best to have another person taking the photograph totally so sometimes my husband is there uh there's one that my mother-in-law did and mm-hmm. because it's because working with children it works better to say okay take it now right then um okay i'm gonna hit this remote and then there's gonna be delay and the picture will be taken it just i need that the immediacy of someone actually hitting the shutter when i want the photograph to be taken totally and yeah. when, since it's you fitting yourself into a space and all of the, you know, context of that space, and it's you, you know, being you in there, what goes through your mind as you're taking the photos? And like, what is, what do you think might be gained and lost in the final manifestation of that? Hmm. What is going through my mind? Yeah. <laughs> I think it depends on the situation. If I'm working alone, there's a sort of peace to it because it's easier to know that I'm going to get exactly what I want. Yeah. And that's something that I've gotten very good at. I can come up with an idea for a photograph where I'm alone and then just go out and do it. And that I, I don't know how it's come to that. I guess I've just done it so many times. Totally. But when I'm working with kids or when I'm working with my husband, there there's more give. There has to be. So I think I'm thinking about the range of possibilities for the picture instead of the exact thing that I want and just sort of working my way up to being comfortable with accepting this range and with finding something that works for me within this range instead of trying to be a perfectionist. (laughs) Yeah, um, I mean... When I hear about collaborative projects, I'm just like, that sounds fucking hard. I cannot okay. <laughs> deal with the expectations and the needs of other people. I'm bad enough. So yeah. <laughs> having somebody have a hand in making my work, I imagine, would be such a challenge in like letting go of that control. And what is your process like? Do you, uh, what I know most of is your collages, mm-hmm. and I'm so curious about how you make them. And also the title is just brilliant. Did Which that, one? IRL? That, 
No, the the uncanny. Oh, SF uncanny Valley. SF Valley. That's yeah. so good. It Thank feels you. like <laughs> like did the the idea of the work come first, or did the amazing title come first, and then fitting the work into it? That's a great question, and people actually like never ask me about the name of my Instagram, and I think it's it has, so good. Thank you, and I I think it's actually really interesting how it sort of comes about. Um, it's gonna be kind of a long story, but. Basically, oh, I'm, I'm here for it. Yeah, anyway. here for it. Great. We're recording. It's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so after I moved back from college, uh, I lived with my folks uh, for like two, almost three years. Um, and I wanted to become a part of the art world and just sort of like noticed how disconnected the Valley really was. And mm-hmm. making so a social media account, using that as a platform was a way for me to circumvent like the social aspects of being an artist, which I hate. <laughs> and <laughs> even though like I kind of love it, but I also kind of hate it. Um, and so, you know, using a digital platform like that sort of like gives you that distance and you're able to reach out to people. Um, so that's sort of how that work came about. So I would say that the work came from my desperation to be heard before the title was made. Um, and the title uh, comes from the term uncanny valley, mm-hmm. which is a term in aesthetics. Have you heard of that? That's why that's what makes it work so well. It's totally how well the, the title fits the work. Yeah. And I'll and I'll just explain quickly what that means. But basically, it's a term in aesthetics, which is sort of like, uh, a viewer's level of discomfort with um, in the presence of an animatronic thing that sort of replicates human movement. Right. So my whole idea was that I was going to make an Instagram that was um, sort of like a validation machine for myself <laughs> and be as thirsty as I want to be and get the love that I truly desire. And I noticed that um, in the intellectual communities especially, but like often there's so much shaming about wanting love and there's so much mm-hmm. shaming about real displays of emotion online. Um, So I'm sort of saying that it's like we have an uncanny valley reaction to the digital manifestation of emotion. Hmm. We're like, oh, this is too human for us, and that grosses me out. (laughs) The fact that you need to be loved, the fact that you're like hashtag Hmm. like and follow is sort of like an animatronic uh, emotion machine. Also, Uncanny Valley was taken, so I just added that (laughs) SF in there, and I was like, oh, this is perfect, and it made sense because I had started in the Valley, but yes, the the whole title of it is sort of about, like, um, all of our discomfort with the need for validation and love. Hmm. Yeah. You're listening to The People on Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find the people on iTunes and anywhere you find podcasts. Check it out. Yeah, and if you're there, uh, do us a favor and leave us a rating or and or review. It really helps people find the podcast. Or just tell a friend about it. Yeah, tell a Great. friend. That's yeah. the thing that helps us the most. Uh, and now we're going to get back to our conversation with Casey Kaufman and Jonna Ireland. So, Casey, um, I'm coming from the East Coast. I'm mm-hmm. coming from a completely non-Valley Girl background. Uh, I've never, I've only observed the Valley Girl stereotype in television and movies, but you have lived within the Valley and also visited other places and lived with people projecting that stereotype onto Mm -hmm. you. What's your experience of that been? So I I think what's interesting about the stereotype is, as I said before, I wasn't even aware of its existence within me until I left LA and I sort of saw it, like you said, projected onto me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think something that I've been thinking about a lot with the whole idea of a valley girl is how the negative 
stereotypes or connotations that are applied to women in a valley girl idea can be applied to any sort of stereotype about women. But I think that the show does a really good job of, of showing a much more expansive, diverse uh, representation of what all that can be. And I would say that, you know, the influence of the valley is in my work, but it's it's not so spe- explicit. I think that there are people in the show who make work literally about the valley, and then there are people who make work in the valley is clearly influencing the type of work they make. And I, I guess the best example of how I, I think it comes through in my work would be like a Cher Horowitz kind of uh, <laughs> uh, Valley Girl vibe. I recently... Although she was not from the Valley, which no, she would tell you Beverly in a minute. Hills. Right. They, yeah. She's from Beverly Hills. And you know what? That is so true. But again, it's like that um, misstep that happens when things are represented, you know, more globally or nationally mm-hmm. in like popular culture like that it's the same way that people think hollywood is some shining glittering you know <laughs> paradise really it's, filled, it's the worst part of it's, it's yeah. literally yeah. filled with like poop like yeah. it's just like a smelly mess so it i love i i am so interested in how the misconception of la mm-hmm. as being this glittery beautiful place Cher horitz isn't even from the valley she just goes to a party in the valley and ends up at circus liquor but <laughs> oh, that's that, right. She does. Yeah, which is still there. Um, but I think that she offers us the the type of woman who I'm interested in, mm-hmm. uh, who is you know sort of displayed as this airhead uh, who doesn't know anything. But really, the whole movie is about how like actually she's quite smart and gets shit done once she decides to. Um, oh. So I love I love that particular representation of women, and I I think that the way that that comes through my work is probably that. Um, you know, I deal with a lot of sparkly sort of femme signifiers, pink and things like that. And um, I th- and I think often, you know, an image that connotes frivolity that's related specifically to women, mm-hmm. people are so willing to sort of disregard as not having deep content. And that's an interaction that I'm playing with. Not only am I sort of making fun of the viewer f- if they feel that way, uh, mm-hmm. for not being able to see the deeper meaning. But I'm also making fun of myself because I have my own complicated relationship to, you know, um, being a woman and what that means in, in visual representation. Um, but yeah, I, I, I only realized that I could identify as a valley girl when other people presented to me, you mm-hmm. know? I, 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 it's not in, innately there. <laughs> Um, but I'm really interested in your impressions of coming to Los Angeles and, and seeing, you know, the objective point of view of what a Valley girl would be like. How do you feel like you fit into that? Do you feel like your work uh, subverts that in any way or reinforces it? Or is that not even like there? <laughs> mm. I think that my work deals more generally with the ideas about being a woman yes. that are also part of the ideas about being a valley girl. Exactly. So <laughs> same. So I'm not thinking like, oh, this is I'm I'm trying to counteract the valley girl stereotype, but I'm thinking I'm trying to counteract an idea of an idea that someone might have about the kind of woman who lives in this house. For yeah. example, I don't look like the kind of woman you might expect to live in this house. Right. Growing up in the nineties and looking at uh cultural products from Los Angeles that were specifically about Los Angeles, there was sort of a divide between uh, things that were made 
about black people and things that were made about white people. And while in Clueless, you have Cher's friend Dion, Mm -hmm. who is black, and her boyfriend, and a couple other, like, really minor characters, uh, the stereotypes that you think of when you think of Clueless or you think of the Valley Girl are related to being white. Totally. And I'm coming into this house and this family from a completely different background and, you know, trying to... Uh, think about how if if I am now part of this family is this sort of my house too how can I uh, not take ownership of it exactly it's still it's not my house but it's still uh, a part of me now totally. and I mentioned earlier that I'm taking pictures with my children there that is changing the work too because they really are a part of that family right and I'm trying to now deal with the fact that they actually do feel a sense of ownership they walk into this house like they own the place because they were born into it yeah Yeah. exactly and I'm just I'm still just trying to figure those ideas out and probably not explaining myself no no that makes a lot of sense and when you take pictures with your children in that space do you feel like a little bit more of a part of that space when your children are there? Because as much as your children have grown up with being, you know, sort of accepted and a part of that world, your children are you, you know? Yes. Yeah. So how does that, when you take those pictures, how does it make you feel? That's something that I'm still working through, too. Totally. Um, it's very, the idea that, that these children are just as related to my parents as they are to my husband's parents is really mind-blowing yeah still and I think it always will be over time those relationships have uh, sort of developed on their own yeah. and the process of, of actually making the work has made me more involved in the family because at first it was like okay we're here for me to go to school and we'll maybe see you guys sometimes but then it turned into having brunch every Sunday and then it turned into having brunch and going over and doing these pictures and through actually making the work, I began to feel like part of the family. And now it's something that I can talk about with them and that they're proud of and excited about. That's beautiful. Yeah. I mean, like, that's that's kind of one of my favorite things to talk about with art is how you, you create a system of rules for yourself, which is a practice. Mm-hmm. And that practice manifests work, but so much more of what's manifested is emotional and your relationships to people and... Mm-hmm the spaces that you inhabit, you know, so it's amazing to make yourself a set of rules and a practice that would actually have like an emotional, um, you know, relationship function in your life. And I think that photography in particular can really like open up those relationships through images that, you know, show things that can't be said. Mm. Another thing that I was going to mention about the Valley's influence in in the work that I've put in the show and, and just the work that I make in general and, and what I think of what a Valley girl is. This is uh, that was the first question. <laughs> um, so my interpretation of a Valley girl is super informed by my mother. Um, and I did a drawing of her in the show. Yes, which is very good. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so my mom is from the Valley. She is a pageant queen. She was in the Hollywood parade. She rode on the float. She was queen of queens. There's great photos of her in like a fur bikini with like queen of queens sash, everything. Um, 
And those photos are her contact sheets from her modeling days in the 70s. And she's like 16, 17. Wow. I don't know if they're pre or post nose job. Um, but <laughs> she would hate me saying this. Um, <laughs> but so in the photo, she's super young. And if you look at it, it just sort of looks like a superficial photo of like a pretty blonde, you know, um, who's making a face and is kind of like fun and different. That's my, my mom is more than fun and different. She crazy, but, (laughs) um, you know, it just looks kind of like an innocuous photo, but Mm -hmm. if you look more deeply at it, you can sort of like see this deep discomfort in her eyes. And when I asked her about the experience Mm -hmm. of taking the photo, she was like, oh yeah, that guy was trying to take my clothes off, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that that is an image I love, an image Mm -hmm. that looks superficial and sort of looks like a manipulation through beauty or through charm, mm-hmm. um, which is often how beauty, charm, and emotion is characterized with women as manipulation. Um, <laughs> and I, I love something that sort of has that surface look, but is belies such a deeper reality. Hence the use of like sparkles and pink and stuff. And so I would mm-hmm. relate that to the whole idea of the valley itself, is that it sort of looks like a superficial place that just sort of has strip balls and juicy couture sweatpants, you know, and Starbucks frappuccinos. But like, just like every place, there's deeper stories that are underneath every glittery surface. Right. Which describes both of y'all's work. Yeah. I mean, right. I mean, they couldn't be more, I think it's safe to say they couldn't be more aesthetically different. Yeah. Probably. Is that a fair assessment? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But that, that, that undercurrent of of things happening that you can't see or run through both, right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I agree with that for sure. In different uh, uh, levels of creepiness, depending. <laughs> yeah. yeah, totally. <laughs> of unsettledness, I guess. Yeah, I would say unsettledness. Yeah. Maybe creepiness for me. I yeah, would say that's true. I would say more on the <laughs> yeah. unsettled. I would say more on like the, the emotional, like deep undercurrent that I see in your photos, like the one of you like turning around in the yard and it's dark and you've got that like exposure on the. Um, I don't know photography words um, <laughs> on the uh, the oranges and stuff. It's just got this. Maybe you're gonna hate me saying this, but this like Twin Peaks kind of undercurrent, you know? No, that's okay. Yeah, I, mean, I love Twin Peaks, and I know that the things that I love are always leaking in. Yes. So I'm I'm sure that is fair. Yeah. More than fair. It's not a bad <laughs> association. Oh. I don't. I'll say that it's not as no offense, David Lynch, but it, that's not as hit you over the head as Twin Peaks. Yeah. Certainly, it's like, yeah, check maybe. it out. It's weird, you know. No yeah. offense, buddy, David, but yours are much more subtle, you know. Thank There's you. not a dude in a weird rabbit outfit, you know. Yeah, facts. Yeah. I don't mind the lack of subtlety in David Lynch or anything else, though. Sure, me <laughs> neither. Really. <laughs> so I just want to ask a question about like photography, you know, capital P photography, and. I wonder about your relationship to that, to a historical practice. But it seems like what you're doing in the photos are making kind of an alternative uh, um, story. And yet, and it's like, it is you in the photos at times, but it Mm -hmm. also seems like it's not you. And tell us about that kind of like, that narrative that's happening in the photos. Reality and kind of like the fiction that's happening. I started... Uh, seriously taking photographs when I was about 14 and I always had this feeling that I wanted to use myself in my work but I was always afraid that people would think that it was about 
vanity when really I just like didn't want to be looked at at all. So I'm dealing with trying, wanting to be seen in some ways and also like feeling horrible and awkward and like no one should ever see pictures of me. I so relate <laughs> to that, go on. <laughs> So, you know, in high school, I would do, like, a picture of my shoes, and then I worked my way up to sort of being in <laughs> my pictures, but being partially obscured. Classic. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was like a – it. they were self-portraits, but they weren't really recognizable as me. Right. And when I got here to go to school and started doing this work in the Valley, I made this real effort to become – recognizable in my work but I do still think of it as sort of of as a character I think of it as a performance and I caught myself calling myself she or her when I talked about the photographs and just sort of thinking of myself as someone I'd hired which was very weird was that helpful (laughs) in like staging the photographs thinking of it that way I think so I think that I needed to think that way to uh, separate the job of taking the photographs and being in the photographs and make it something that I felt capable of doing. Because you needed to still, like, play art director, you know, in that way, right? Right, too. And not have to, like, that be about directing yourself in a way. I had to be able to... I had to n- know what I needed to do and know what I needed to get and figure out a way to deliver this performance without being self-conscious about it. So it just became something something separate. Sounds like a good trick that you figured out, though, right? <laughs> yeah. We all need our um, our like invented distance mm-hmm. from ourselves. You know, I also like really want to talk about myself and my work, but you know, it, I think that like being a, a a female identifying artist, like we so often have this panic and anxiety about talking about ourselves, representing ourselves, being misconstrued as manipulating, like, you know, especially if you're like, I I mean, like in so many ways, the way that you fit into the, the beauty construct, you know, can be really used and weaponized against you, you know, mm-hmm. in particular ways. So I, I think it's so interesting to find out about the ad- adaptability of artists and how we find ways around ourselves, you know. I mean, I use social media as a tool for distance or else I'd never be able to say the crazy sophomoric things that I say. (laughs) You're listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. Remember, you can find this episode and all other past episodes of The People on uh, iTunes or anywhere else where you get your podcasts. Anywhere where you get podcasts, we are there. We're already there. And if you're listening to the show and you like it, leave us a rating or review or uh, tell a friend about the show. Yeah, that's, that's it helps. The best. Uh, it would, it's really helpful to leave a rating and review, uh, but telling a friend is really the most important thing you can do to help it's us It's the out. best. It's the best. And now back to our conversation with Casey Kaufman and Jonna Ireland. I think at the beginning I asked you about your process and we started talking about something totally different yeah. and it moved <laughs> away from it. So I still have questions about it. How sure. you make these collages where the ideas come from and about the physical manifestation of this very digital work that you do. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, that is a precarious part of it. So, uh, basically the way that I make these collages is I'm using found images from online. A lot of it comes from Tumblr, which unfortunately has gone through major changes. RIP. Yeah. RIP Tumblr. (laughs) Very sad moment in my life. Um, but really, oh, yeah, it, no more, no more porn. 
basically. Yeah, no more yeah. porn, no more dirty pictures, right. which is where my main source for dirty pictures was Tumblr. I mean, um, that's that's what Tumblr is for. Yeah, it's what it should be for. And I'm just really <laughs> wondering um, what developer is going to come out with a platform that is, you know, will avoid all this shit. They're going to make millions. Um, <laughs> please do it. <laughs> I'm behind you. Um, so anyway, when I uh, there's two reasons that I make a collage. There's one reason would be I come across an image online that absolutely has to be made into a collage. It's like, you know, the crazy SpongeBob mascot from, you know, that doesn't look like SpongeBob needs to be in the world. <laughs> or it's um, because I'm feeling some type of way. Uh, I, I mentioned this earlier, uh, but my professor now, Bustamante, described my work as delightfully sophomoric, <laughs> and that's, like, one of my favorite descriptions ever. Mm-hmm. Um, so, again, like, when I, like, if I go on a really bad date and some dude is being a total fuckboy asshole, like, that <laughs> is a reason for me to make a collage. Oh, my God, your <laughs> art bros. Collages. Oh. <laughs> so good. So spot on. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes, I'm trying to educate the world. Please avoid at all costs. Yeah, I have a whole list <laughs> of reasons a boy could be an art bro. Um, so, yeah, that that's a big reason why I would make a collage. And then if you notice in the captions, they're often really emotional and just sort of they're cryptic, but they're still about my experience in that moment. Um, and the way that ends up is that my whole my whole Instagram, the whole archive ends up being like an archive of experience of my own life. And I get to look back on it and I can look at a collage from 2014 and be like, yeah, that asshole. I remember that shit. (laughs) Um, So I, I I love having it all together. Mm -hmm. uh, This digital manifestation of a life um, in a sort of cryptic way. So those are the two reasons that I would make a collage. Mm -hmm. And the way that I make them is on an app on my phone. It's called Photo Layers. So every single collage and every gift that's in that show was made on my phone. Um, And I just sort of cut them out and assemble them together. Um, And the gifts kind of work like cell animation. So I'm making collages that sort of replicate motion and adding them all together in an Mm -hmm. app that turns it into a GIF and then a video so I can post it. Um, (laughs) Of course. Instagram does not take GIFs, which is another thing. Yeah, no, they need to work on that. But uh, I will find out a way either way, whether they do it or not. Um, And so that's how I kind of make that work. And then um, for the physical manifestations of it, another reason why I started this process is because I had no money. I wanted to make digital work. I didn't Mm -hmm. even have a computer when I started making these. So I wanted to make digital work and had no way to do it. So I made work that I didn't have to spend money physically manifesting until I was ready to do it. Mm -hmm. And I love the democratizing aspects of making digital work and how you can avoid the object centric, uh, you know, ideas put forth by the art world. But when I do need to make an object, (laughs) (laughs) um, I would never just make like a, paper print of these pieces. Anything that I make, I want it to be sort of screen referential. I like the idea that these images live multiple lives, but I want the um, the character of their inception to be there in the final version of it. Um, so I, I uh, do, do it in multiple ways. I'll make acrylic block prints. Um, I've just mm-hmm. done like projections and stuff. But what you see at the brand and um, at Elevator Mondays actually, is uh, a, an idea that I've had where I'm trying to physically manifest my feed. I would never just want to show an image. I'm trying to physically manifest the experience of engaging with this work online. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've done that in multiple ways. 
on silk. I've done it on vinyl banners. This, this piece that's at the brand is definitely the most successful version of a physical manifestation of the feed. I think it's the first time that I've made a, a piece of work like that and it actually functions the way that it does to scroll through my feed online. And I think yeah. that's because of the scale of it, you stand in front of it, some of it animates. And I just want to overwhelm the viewer the same way that I'm overwhelmed by all the excess of images that I can find online. It does give you that feeling of finding a new Instagram and just falling into it and feeling like the feed goes on forever and ever and you'll never get to the bottom of it. I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, infinite flow. And actually, if you look at the piece, the one in the bottom right-hand corner is the first collage that I ever made. So the piece is actually Mm -hmm. in chronological order. I have over 500 collages that I've made and saved, but this is a selection of 300 of them. (laughs) And they're done in that chronological order because you can kind of watch the progression of my practice. And if you look Mm -hmm. at the most recent ones that are at the top, they're much more refined. And then the first ones, you know, they're still sort of shaky. And I love watching that progression of my own work and again it's about like um having a timeline of your life so having Mm -hmm. that chronological order is important to me and I've only done that in this piece the other (laughs) ones were just sort of like curated collections because it's such a pain in the ass to archive this work my god yeah (laughs) I started um blogging in I don't know, maybe 10th grade. Mm-hmm. So I have like a diary land and a live journal and a Tumblr and like it's even a, a MySpace. Diary land. I don't it's even like, know what that oh, is. Oh, you're so young. <laughs> <laughs> Never even heard that one. <laughs> but it's like there's there are a lot of images, but it's so text-based. Mm-hmm. And I'm really into this idea you're talking about of, of like kind of having a, a coded uh, version of the story for yes. yourself that's an image. Yeah. That's really cool. Yes. I always, um, I'm always afraid of people finding things that I write. So everything that I ever wrote was in code. So I would write something about a boy and then like a year later forget who the boy was because I'm hiding details. Yeah. And then you, uh, you figured out a way to kind of make a visual shorthand for those ideas for yourself. Yes. Yeah. And it's, and it's, I, I like the freedom of not being so literal about it, you know, like. I'm obviously not showing a picture of the dude who was a fucking asshole, you know, like that would not be good. Uh, but the hope is that he looks and sees that I'm talking about him. <laughs> but can't prove it. <laughs> you can't prove it, but you might notice that you're a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> what are we going to ask? What, are the, art, what are the art bro qualifications really quick? Oh, my God. I would have to look oh, at my phone. Okay. I, can, I can think of a couple. I can think of a couple. Um, one of my favorites is... Uh, thinks he knows more about feminism than you because he's read a BuzzFeed article about it, loves to educate you on well, what actually, that means. Well, <laughs> actually... JK, JK. I mean, there's plenty. Has a mustache and it smells. Oh. <laughs> you know, one sure. like that. Yeah. Sorry, that was an aside. <laughs> so your experience at the Brand Library, putting that piece together with like 300 of the 500 collages, it yeah. sounds like that was like quite a feat putting it together. Yeah, it was. And I don't think it would have happened without Aaron and Shannon, who are the curators of the exhibition. Um, I was surprised when we had our studio visit for the show and I sort of presented them with this idea and talked to them about how I do physical manifestations of my feed. And they 
sort of gave me permission to think way bigger because they helped me create this piece, both monetarily and physically. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not a super technical artist. You put a power tool in my hand and I'm going to freak out and die. <laughs> like, I don't know what to do with those. So to have professionals help me in that way, mm-hmm. uh, mind-blowing. Like, I've, I've had... A, some experience showing my work in Los Angeles, and I've had some very bad experiences doing that. Um, So this is by far the best interaction and relationship I've had with curators, and I feel Mm -hmm. so grateful uh, that they're so willing to help their artists out. It's just really rare, and I could never even think to work on this scale without that help. So, And another thing is um, I did not get to see that piece till I walked in the show. Wow. Uh, and I walked in and my friend was walking up with me and he was like, oh, my God, you look so worried. And I was like, yeah, I haven't seen the piece. I don't know what it's like. And I turned the corner and I was like, fuck, yeah. Like, it, like I actually, that's <laughs> another thing I should say about manifesting my work. I often send an image to a company and then they send me back a piece. So mm-hmm. there's this wonderful moment. I'm sure you get this with printing photographs, too, where, like, yeah. you don't know what it's going to be and you open the box and then it's like someone else made something for you of you and it's uh I love that I love the gratification of that have you had any crazy experiences with curators how's your experience been working with them just in general my experience of showing work is usually that I'm kind of on my own yeah but I last year no late in late 2017 uh, I had a show of some work I'm doing about the architect, Paul Williams. Mm-hmm. And I was kind of working on it on my own for a long time, knowing that a show was coming. And then one day I just found out that there would be curators involved. Oh. And they they came up with the title. They, you know, found the framer. They helped with the printing. It was uh, not something I was expecting. And it was so strange and wonderful and sort of magical to be taken care of in that way when I'm used to trying to figure out how much work I can fit in the back of my car. Am I going to have to take three trips to the gallery? Um, Am I going to be able to install this on my own? Because I am also pretty terrified of power tools. (laughs) Yeah, installing work, fuck that. Uh, Yeah, never again. (laughs) (laughs) I hate it. (laughs) So uh, it's that's also very new to me. Yeah, for sure. And it feels great. I don't know how to how to keep it going, but I would love to not feel on my own anymore. Yeah, because and it's already so much labor to do what we're doing. Physical labor, emotional labor. Monetary <laughs> expense, yeah. you know. Um, yeah, it's amazing to feel supported like that. It's, it's rare, and I hope it keeps happening. <laughs> <laughs> so both of you guys are working with photography in photography or image making. Totally. Um, and coming at it from different kind of perspectives. I'm interested in uh, hearing like how the quote unquote internet or Mm -hmm. this kind of circulation of images that, you know, we're confronted with constantly, um, how that functions in your thinking about what you do as a, Mm -hmm. as a creator. For sure. Um... Well, and we kind of, I mean, Casey, you kind of already answered that in that, like it is where the imagery comes from yes. like it is very much right. like you're replicating the feeling of being on social media by the way it's presented as an object in a gallery right right so that that tracks for me jonna what like you doing like photography photography like does does that even come into the picture when you're thinking about making photos or is it a consideration i guess where do you position yourself 
against like the internet culture or that flood of images that we're referring to? I think the flood of images is very important to me. Uh, I mentioned earlier when I was talking to you guys before we started that I'm really bad about going to shows. <laughs> so, so much of my experience of art is through the internet. And I look at it all day. And it, so it's just kind of a, a constant stream of inspiration and and things to think about. And I, I, uh, I haven't figured out how to fit my work into it yet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's you, you call it capital P photography <laughs> at one point, yeah. but it's, it's digital. And I work the same way Casey does in that I'm working digitally so that I can avoid the cost of totally. producing an object for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. So I'm still, I'm, I'm working the same way, even though the, the work itself looks very different. How do you feel w- about um, putting your images online? Like when you put um, one of your photographs on Instagram, how does that translate? Do you think anything is lost or gained? I think that a lot of photographers feel that the end game is a physical object totally and i do like the frame print but i don't i mean you always lose something when you're looking at something on a tiny screen versus uh, a big print but there's a way that images on screen feel alive to me yes and i like what it does to my work yeah even if it's teeny tiny there's still uh there's there's a glow you know it's, it's... there's a literal glow there's a <laughs> yeah. literal backlighting to the image which i am also obsessed with yeah and i think it's um i don't know i don't really understand how work got around before the internet like, yeah. <laughs> slides Oh slides. my God, slides! <laughs> What's a slide? Jesus! Oh my God! Uh, what I gave to Cal Arts to get in there, I guess. <laughs> I did. Yeah. I did slides. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. I, I know. I what did they are. not. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it like in the circulation of images for myself, um, I think something that's really interesting about that I've sort of realized about my own work is, you know, what you're doing is. It, in a way different because you're literally creating content and I'm not a content creator. I'm only an appropriation artist. I've realized that um, because I'm in this After Effects class and I have to like make an animation and I'm like, why would I make anything? There's already so many things. <laughs> what's the What's the difference, do you think? I, I would say that the difference is that you, you're creating, a, I mean like of course, there's nothing original. We can all agree on that. Like of mm-hmm. course, everything that you make comes from you know, something else, but like you're literally creating these photographs, you know, like it's you, you're setting the scene, all of that. I am cutting things out, images that already exist and rearranging them to make new meaning. Um, Like interestingly enough for the show, the work was censored. I have three Mm -hmm. pieces in the show that were censored. And um, looking back at the pictures, you know, like one of the collages that they censored is like uh, the torso of two women who are clearly like making out or something and they're naked but it's like you can't see their nipples it's just like breasts up against each other and you mean instagram censored these images no the brand the... censored some of my work oh yeah there was so a there little black note squares yes. over a few of them which was right. an agreement between us and again um exemplifies a really good relationship with these curators mm-hmm. that right. i was able to do it in the way that i wanted to um which i can elaborate more on if i need to but What's interesting about the images that they chose is that they really prove the power of collage 
uh, because it's me taking images that were made by someone else and putting them together. And a picture of a knife and women's breasts are innocuous when separate. But when put together, they create mm-hmm. new uncomfortable meaning for people. So I, I think that I, one of the most interesting thing about what I do is that I'm making images like mostly that are made by men for the pleasure of men. And I'm subverting those original intentions of those meanings by placing them with other images. Hence, Mm -hmm. giving myself like a sense of agency as a woman interacting with those images. So when it comes to the circulation of images that I'm constantly being fed, I I can't help but use this content, which I have to suffer the circulation of these images (laughs) in my life on a daily basis. So I have every right to use them. And being told that I can't is a really painful thing. You know, mm-hmm. and it's okay that that happens, but um, yeah, I think that if I'm going to be inundated with images that cause me pain, I'd rather laugh about it than cry. Mm-hmm. Well, Casey, John, thank you so much for joining us on The People. Thank you, guys. Thank very you much. for having, for having me. us. You've been listening to The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons, and I just want to say again, we invite you to the People's Six-Year Anniversary Gala on Friday, March 8th from 7 to 11 p.m. at TSA LA Gallery. And remember, that's in the Bendix Building, uh, 1206 Maple Ave on the fifth floor in uh, downtown LA. Yep, and we're just going to be celebrating the fact that this podcast has been going for six years. We've done 72 episodes. It's a ton of episodes, uh, and we've worked really hard, and we really appreciate y'all listening. Yes. And uh, we're inviting, again, we're going to invite everyone who's ever been on the show, uh, musicians, uh, poets, writers, uh, artists, everybody. Everybody. uh, Non-organic chemists. You know who you are um and uh also we're inviting friends of the show and if you're listening to this right now you that's are a you. friend of the show you're a friend of yes, the show absolutely. so please come out and uh, have some drinks with us yes absolutely there's gonna be projection by ignacio Gonzalez. there's gonna be djs it's gonna be a great party and you can find out all the info at insertblancpress.net by clicking on the people at the top of the page yeah we really again we really appreciate you listening to the show and we really hope to see you at the gala so uh show up and uh, bring your friends Yes, and uh, our interstitial music, as always, is Ockfifth by Lewis Keller. And now we're going to go out with a track made specifically for the People Radio by Joshua Weinberg as Narak Slip. And the track is called Adoralis Infinitum, version K.